Say hello to Hamul Casino, San Diego's newest, closest, and most entertaining place to play with all your favorite table games and most popular slots, plus seven dining options, lounges, and incredible live entertainment just minutes away. Highway 94 to Campo Road. Join us at Hamul Casino. Uno, dos. Yo, 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 yo. Yo, something happened. Now we're rolling. Okay. I'm going to turn it, and then I can turn this down here, right? Yep. Perfect. All right, good. All right, ready, JoJo? Yep. Joe, this is Paul, by the way, our producer, Joe Rinaldi. Joe's the man you want to know around town. Trust me on that one. All right. All right. (laughs) Through me, exactly. In three, two. Welcome back to Woods with Friends. It has been a while, my friends, and I apologize. It's uh, it's a little hectic right now in in life with uh, a baby. And uh, I got a, a new client that I've been attending, Art of Eight. Go every day to the gym. I box and, and work out. So I'm sorry. I've neglected Woods with friends. I'm back, though, with a good friend of mine I haven't seen in a long time. I'm happy he's here. Joe Rinaldi is his name. What's up? And Joe is, um, what, would you, what would you call yourself? Uh, right now I'm the general manager of the music box, but I run venues. Yeah, you run venues, and you have for a very long time. One of the best in the business at it. And the the music box, if you haven't been, by the way, it's one of the more beautiful, um, aesthetically beautiful looking sounding facilities uh, right downtown. Which is, is it? It's not technically Little Italy, is it? No. Uh, no. We're, we're in what's called an overlap district, but we're mainly in a Columbia downtown. Generally, our neighbors are courthouses and things like that. It's a little and residential towers, and but one block to the north in Little Italy essentially explodes right from there. Yeah, and it's a beautiful, beautiful facility, colorful, gorgeous, clean, kind of, kind of fancy. I like it. I like it. It's a beautiful spot. Um, I, uh, I'm looking forward to. You guys are about to celebrate your third anniversary already. I remember when it when it opened. I went for the the grand opening. And then you walked me around, you showed me the back rooms, and you said, Woods, if you ever want to come, this is your booth here, special <laughs> private booth. Is that still there for me? Do I still have that option? Yeah, the, the, the plaque has got some tarnish It's on a little it. tarnish, <laughs> but it, it has been a while. Well, Joe has been doing this for a long time, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to have him in this morning is you guys are throwing Oct- an Oktoberfest. The Oktoberfest. The Oktoberfest. With all respect to La Mesa, I mean, come on, 90,000 people, but what they never had was an Oktoberfest that legitimately took over the streets of San Diego downtown. Yeah. Anywhere from East Village into Little Italy and down to the waterfront, it hasn't existed. You went out to La Mesa if you wanted to have Oktoberfest, and what's changed in the last decade, but craft brewing has exploded, and it's the capital of craft brewing. So we came up with the whole concept of West Coast Oktoberfest, and we want to— have it be a destination for people to come in from out of town as well as a celebration for people who live here to say, this is what we do. And it is Saturday, October 6th, and Sunday, October 7th. The cool thing is, one of the cool things, there's many cool things about it, but one of the cool things is is that if you're a VIP at uh, this Oktoberfest, you can go in, and you guys are going to do a VIP post party where you can watch the McGregor fight. Is that right? 100%. I am st- Stoked for that. He's got his 100% shirt on. In my honor. Thank you. That's uh, been saying that for years. 100%. 100%. You, did, you didn't know you had merch, did you? I didn't know I had merch. I'd never get a cut of any of my stuff, to be honest with you. Um, so the, the McGregor fight is going to be October 6th that night. It's going to be insane. If you saw the press conference yesterday, it's batshit crazy. It was <laughs> bananas. I'm kind of a fringe MMA guy. Kind of not anymore. After seeing that, I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I want to be down there for that VIP party that night. It's going to be insane. 
Well, you'll probably be the guest of honor. At oh, this that'd point. be great. That I, would I, be fantastic. I heard these spots on Mighty 1090. Oh, you loved it. I mean, I'm, you know, I stalk, listened to 1090 until I heard my own ads, you know, it was awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun deal. How did this all come together? How's it shaping up? Are you, do you get freaked out when you're putting something like this together? Uh, those are great. That's like seven questions. Yeah, I do uh, that. But um, the the city actually approached us uh, and said, hey, we love what you're doing. We'd like to collaborate with you. Uh, we want to try to figure out some activity to put into the Columbia District of downtown because it's pretty sleepy. Uh, once you get south of Little Italy and you're to the west of the gas lamp, it ceases to have activity basically when the courthouse closes until the courthouse reopens. And we're like, what can we do? And to me, that looks like a whole bunch of unused space, a, a blank canvas, if you will. Right. And so I, I think about parades and thinking about, obviously thinking about concerts and, but I got it. You want me to play acoustic or what? I will. I'll come up and play some like Mark Lanigan songs acoustic. I've actually lost my voice, my singing voice. It's weird. I can't sing anymore. I used to sing like for bands and I would play gigs. I can't sing anymore. So now I sing like Mark Lanigan if I sing at all. And th that's a bad thing? It's not a bad thing, but it's just not real challenging. I've been on this Anthony Bourdain kick. Yeah. And the Lanigan part and the Queens of the Stone Age guy, Josh's yep. background on that is just haunting. It's haunting if and you don't I, I know totally, that story. I totally learned it on acoustic guitar. Yeah. I was addicted to it. Just I had to have that in my repertoire. It's uh, it's it's crazy. So you've got this space. You guys have, have talked to the city. Permits are done. Tickets are on sale. Where can people buy tickets if they're listening right now and they want to be a part of this very, the, the inaugural downtown Oktoberfest. Well, musicboxsd.com is ticket central. I sell all my concert tickets there. We have over 100 shows on sale right now. Awesome. Uh, but we also set up westcoastoktoberfest.com. That's the part that's in the ad that's running. And it's with a K, uh, yeah. just to make it super obvious. Oktoberfest. Right. right. And, um, that's how they do it over there. That's <laughs> yeah. how, that's how you, you have to be legit when you're doing something like this. you got to call it Oktoberfest with a K. Right. And how, um, how wild is this going to be? You know... All I can do is put the panda bears together. Whatever you know? <laughs> happens after that is out of your control. You put the pandas together and you hope. And you, you cross <laughs> your fingers and see what happens. Just to put it in San Diego Zoo sort of terms. And so it's going to be it's going to be basically, um, for people that don't know, you're going to right down in front of Music Box, that whole area, you guys are going to have it roped off. You're going to have... Are there going to be bands playing too? We have uh, DJs playing inside, but it's not a music festival. Not a music festival. I, I went. Is you know, if you want to go to a music festival oriented Oktoberfest, go to OB. I, I love those guys. I'm in support. They also happen to be on a non-competing day, the 13th. God bless them. You know, it's making a whole month of Oktoberfest. Just right. one every weekend. Right. It, and you know, some can have different elements. What I wanted to do is. Uh, not have a concert, just sort of saving the concert concept to do that elsewhere. And, yeah. You know, because as a consumer, when I go to a place where I'm there to get two or three pints of West Coast IPA and celebrate Oktoberfest, I want to see traditional German, which is what we're doing, brass and traditional German. And then when that's not happening, I want something that's not in my way. And Can I get a big-ass stein of beer like they do at the real Oktoberfest in Germany? There is a stein that is available as your receptacle for your beer for a slight extra charge. It's fine. Yeah. That's you fine. I just want it. the stein. I want to walk around with that big old stein of beer. You got the red solo option. You got the stein option. I'll Maybe, maybe do one of each. Uh, I'm excited about this. This is going to be a really fun thing, and I'm going to have to pace myself if I want to make it through the McGregor fight. I don't, <laughs> I don't drink much anymore. 
with the baby at home. But, you know, October is shaping up to be quite a fun month with that uh, early. Then I go to Arizona to play in a five-day baseball tournament with my buddies. Then I come back and Notre Dame's in town to take on Navy at Qualcomm. I'm booked solid for October, and I love it. I already know all my plans. It's going to be great. Uh, just a little background, too, about Joe and I. So Joe used to run a place in town called The Marrow, right? right? And before that, The Griffin. Before that, The Griffin. So one of the, I can honestly say, and anybody that's heard my podcasts before, um, Joe is responsible for, I'd say, one of the best nights I've had in San Diego. <laughs> and I, you know this, of course. This band called uh, Crosses played the marrow now crosses is made up of that's that's the griffin the oh it's the griffin at the time right so you what, you what is it a, now uh i don't know you just said something about regal seagull a second ago it's that's what n- oh is it sidecar okay. yeah sidecar so it was when it was the griffin i worked at fm 94.9 uh this band crosses came to town playing a show for 91x our our you know arch rivals it was uh they used to do the what the 91 cent shows mm-hmm. and you guys would charge 91 cents to get in lines out the door the whole bit well joe ran the place crosses was a, a band that chino from deftones little side project chino is a he's in a the guy can play they play huge festivals the fact that he's playing this small club with this new band whose record was amazing um i was like shit i can't get in it's a 91x show joe's like i got it come on down it's still one of the greatest nights of my life, and it kind of makes me a dick that this makes me happy, but I don't care because there was a line of people out the door, and I mean down the goddamn street. It and, was big. And me and my, my me, one, two, three, I think three of us walked in. We walked in front of the line. Joe saw us, grabbed us, put us to a special table, a booth, hooked it up all night. I don't know that I've been that drunk. In a, I haven't been that drunk since that night. That was amazing. Uh, such a fun night, such a good human being. And then I was talking to Joe once about having a birthday party, like maybe my 40th birthday. And uh, Joe's like, well, let me make some calls and see if I can get some. He tried to get Kid Rock to play my birthday party. Like he was on the phone talking to, who did we almost get? We got close on some people, didn't we? Well, we got close on some Kid. Ha- on, yeah, close on Kid Rock, which would have been insane. Uh, we were calling a bunch of hair metal bands. You and I both have a, a strong affinity for the hair metal of the 80s. We love I'm in, it. I'm in second place on that, but yeah. What do you I mean like second it. place? I mean, you win. I have the affinity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, but you were around, you were around Hollywood in that time, were you not? Yeah, I have run a stewardship of hair metal, for sure. Have you? Yes. So where did you, first of all, where did you grow up? Where did you start doing all of this? I'm going to circle all the way back around. I actually went to school in Germany. Did you? Yeah, I went to uh, high school in Frankfurt. And um, that's, you know, when it came to Oktoberfest, the reason I had that idea is like, hey, I got some legitimacy here. I've been to to Munich and had the polliner, you know, so that's part of it. But um, the other part of that is there's no drinking age, so there's no 21 plus clubs. So even in high school, you are participating in the arts as a citizen of the place. Yeah. So I saw things like Frank Zappa. You know, wow. Simon and Garfunkel, uh, you know, all of that, all of, all of those types of shows, Jethro Tull. When you were 18, 17, 16. 15. 15. Right. Going Rush. to clubs, watching Rush yeah, yeah. in Germany. Holy right. shit. What was, right. the, what was your favorite from back in that, that era? What's the one that sticks out to you? You know, it's going to stay with the Simon and Garfunkel one. It, really? It goes on my top five list. They just played the um, Central Park show, the super famous Central Park show. And then um, they did a European tour, and then they broke up for a year, and so the U.S. didn't even get that show beyond Central Park yeah. until the following year. 
So, but one of the first shows after Central Park was right outside of Frankfurt, and I just got on. You know, the transportation exists there without a car. You just hop on the U-Bahn, and there you are. You know, about twenty miles away at a soccer stadium, and there's Simon and Garfunkel blasting out hits. How old were you? Fifteen. Fifteen years old, and you you just went with some buddies or what? Uh, I met them there. Met them there solo, just roll. At 15, my God. No minivans. It's, they it's, did not invent the minivan at that time. I'm that old. That is true. No parents dropping uh, kids off. It's like, hey, go see Simon and Garfunkel and come on back. Well, then you ended up in Hollywood. And, and I, I, you and I have never really delved much into this chapter of your life. But it's a chapter for me that is, it's beyond fascinating. As somebody that grew up, um, 43 the 80s, so I, I grew up listening to, um, you know, what my parents listened to, which was Motown. Um, it was the Beach Boys. It was the Doors. My dad turned me on to the Doors, and that kind of spurred me on my musical journey. Reading about Morrison, doing drugs and sleeping with women, writing poetry, creating beautiful music. I became, that was really, they were really, besides Kiss, who I loved when I was little, little, uh, Kiss, the Cars, Billy Squire, I'd say my first three bands that I really loved when I was a kid. Then The Doors was kind of mine. My dad turned me on to that, and I really ran with that, really trying to be Jim Morrison at, you know, in eighth grade. Uh, and and for me, then hair metal came out. And I was uh, a singer and sang in a band, and we found out those songs were pretty easy to play, and they're pretty fun to play, and they're fun at parties, and we liked Poison, and then the power ballads came out. And we're all discovering girls for our first time. So you hear Every Rose Has Its Thorn. You hear Patience by Guns N' Roses. And it touches you on a level. You're coming into your own. You're learning about girls and love and all of that. And it all just kind of hit. But I was so enamored with, I would get Hit Parader magazine and Cream and all those magazines. And I would see what was happening in L.A. L.A. for me was always this beacon. Always. And I'm talking from fourth grade on. It was a beacon for me. I, 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 I knew I always wanted to be in California, close to Los Angeles, if not in Los Angeles. You were around L.A. around this time or no? Uh, a little later? I don't know. I don't know. I had to really equate the two experiences, but they're really, really similar. I kind of... Um got kicked out of Germany, uh, maybe because of the environment that we had just described, where I could go and do anything and, you know, found trouble at a fairly early age. Sure. And um, spent the last about 18 months of high school in St. Louis. And that's where I discovered hair metal. I went and saw Ozzy with a oh, um, surprise warm-up band called Motley Crue. Holy uh, shit. And stuff like that. And all the way through Sammy Hagar, legitimately, was going to Sammy Hagar. Oh, he's great. You know, one lockbox sort of stuff. And saying, okay, metal, and just getting into that and getting deep diving crocus and all yeah. that. But somehow or another, my California-ness sort of shone through, even though I was in St. Louis. And I'd met a kid there that um, had transferred from NorCal. And, um, you know, he was really into the same, like, really legit metal scene. And yeah. he was telling me about how Motley Crue would make fun of the other guys and say, you're nowhere near legit. Oh, and, yeah. And talk shit. And Motley Crue always fancied themselves a punk band that, that wore makeup. I mean, they were, Nikki's roots were in punk. Uh, Vince, I don't think, cared. Vince wanted to do blow and bang hot blondes, and he did. Mick Mars was kind of rooted in the blues. And Tommy Lee was just a fucking great drummer he could just drum whatever you wanted to play he would just fucking drum 
Uh, but Nikki was the leader of that band, and they, they were a punk band. I mean, straight up. You know, the first record, Livewire, is a punk song. And, you know, Too Fast for Love, All I loved all of that stuff. So you find that. I loved Ozzy. I loved Sabbath. But I liked also the cheesy metal, too. But if it had big, loud guitars, drum solos, you know, you, you, people started knowing who bass players were for the first time ever in history. And then these big, powerful voices and you can say whatever you want about hair metal and its legitimacy those guys could sing they had yeah. pipes they could bring it more so than any of these chodes we got out there today <laughs> i'll tell you that right now like those guys could flat out sing so you're going to see crew and and ozzy yeah and the kid who had the roots in norcal like when we had the summer between junior and senior year of high school we went to san ramon and hung out with all of his old high school friends and what year is this? Uh, 83. 83. Wow. Right. God right damn. in the heart of it. Just right in the just right. the infancy of this so brilliant time. Graduated from um, uh, high school in 84 just before my 18th birthday. And yep. before I turned, I turned 18 in California. I was on a plane five days after graduation saying St. Louis is just not for me. I am a California native. I was born in California. Off I go. And this is where this is going to go. And where did you move? Uh, well, my family's from Stockton. Okay. And um, so I could go there, reestablish residency, and go to college for five bucks a quarter. Wow. Uh, Fifty a quarter, five bucks a credit. But um, yeah, so I went to San Joaquin Delta College for, again, about 20 months and, you know, I was a horrible, horrible high school student, had to do a bunch of turnaround stuff at the JC level, but aced JC and went to UC San Diego. Nice. And so, like, just real quick, two-step, and uh, was in Stockton for just under two years and uh, found out what a hole it was. Yeah. And uh, moved right out of there, and that's the residency of being a San Diegan started in 86 when I got accepted to UCSD and started going to school, and I... I Spent some time in L.A., but I came to San Diego first, uh, did all of the super seminal music-related stuff, was in my first band, did all of that stuff uh, in San Diego, and then um, uh, couldn't get a job in San Diego and um, in music because they don't exist. We'll right. Talk as much, uh, we'll talk about that as much as you ever want, but uh, working in that industry in San Diego is a pipe dream. Yeah, I mean, but, why, why wouldn't you just go to L.A.? Well— You know, it's, it's that close. Right, so that happened. Uh, moved for work to L.A. and took about two years, and within two years I was working at a label and uh, working just my way through the different experiences in the music business until I could figure out exactly what was going to be for me and where there was real opportunity and growth and tenure and 20-year patterns. And had a, I went to business school. I worked at a record label. I did a lot of tour management. Uh, I, you know, Spent some time on tour with bands like you've heard of the Black Crows and oh, God, yeah. Dolls and stuff like that. How and, was that? Um, insane. Just a really, really prominent Mexican pot smell yeah. that just sticks with you. Sticks with you like incense at some point. You're just like, I've had enough. I'm <laughs> reading a book right now. It's called Waiting to Derail. And it's uh, from the tour manager that, that managed Whiskey Town, uh, yeah. which was Ryan Adams' band. Um, and reading the life of a tour manager it's not a glamorous life at all and while the band is partying and getting groupies and doing blow and having all the good times look there are tour managers that do those things absolutely they don't last very long in right. that business and and maybe that's a lesson that you learned as well i don't know but it's you are you're babysitting you're babysitting you are wrangling guys you're getting them to gigs you're taking them to radio hits you are um, making sure they're on time. You're doing sound checks. You're loading gear. There's no glamour in that. What was it about that gig 
was just being around the music, being around. I mean, look, Black Crows were a brilliant band. Brilliant. I fucking love the Black Crows. I still do. On, I have same. I am unabashed. The pipes on him and the chops on on Rich were insane. Yeah. You know, Chris and Rich, they should go down in lore as as a couple of the best brothers to ever play together. There's no doubt. And there's a lot of them out there. Um, what was that like for you being on tour with guys like that and Goo Goo Dolls and whatever else? Uh, they didn't give a shit about me at all. Not one uh, bit. You know, my specialty was uh, uh, specifically they would send me from L.A. to Newark, New Jersey, to pick bands up that were coming from the U.K. Uh, to so that um, in the first two to four weeks that they were on the road supporting their new record that the record company had just put out, that the band learned how to drive on the right side of the road. Wow. So, you know, I'd go and I'd get the 15-passenger um, van, and I'd go meet the... They, a lot of times the amplification stuff that they brought with them had to go separately, so I'd yeah. go to the freight terminal, I'd put it in the van, then I'd go get them. And then we'd go find a hotel in uh, regional New Jersey right. that didn't have too many bugs. And then uh, we'd get started. We'd map out how we were going to get from, you know, essentially a lot of those were radio shows, too, because the developing bands, bands that no one knows anything about, you're going a lot of times from, you know, Erie, Pennsylvania to Buffalo, New York yeah. between two radio gigs. But um, then those bands would inevitably, agents would want to sign them. And the way that they'd entice them to uh, come and be with that agent is they'd put them on a tour like Goo Goo Dolls or a tour like sure. Black Crows. And so you're the tour manager of the band that's the support band right. for three or four weeks. And it's really a big audition. It's audition yeah. for the manager, audition for the the um, the uh, band that's brought them on to see if they're carrying energy to the next thing every time. And then... Uh, uh, for the agent as well, like if they're going to sell tickets. Yeah. And so you're out there and everyone's looking at you. And so that's that's the environment when I'm saying that they didn't give a shit about me. They're just like, yeah, we'll see, is just the synopsis sure. of Your whole life. Like just two we'll years of tour management at that see. level. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> wow. And it's just, it, it's so funny because having been, uh, you know, on the, the uh, being in radio, but that's really the outskirts of, of the music business. You don't see... You see some ugly stuff, sure. Um, you know, you see sometimes how shows are booked, and it kind of makes you laugh. Um, some program directors and program managers put a lot of effort into it. Some don't. Some will just, oh, you guys are all on tour together. We'll sign you up. We'll throw our label on it and, or throw our logo on it and call it our show. Right. Um, that happens all the time. Um, but working for labels, working for um, venues, that's the real shit. Working for bands, that's the real, that's the music business as far as I'm concerned. Radio's not. I, I I don't miss doing music radio at all in its current state. I I got really bored of playing bands that I didn't like, didn't respect, and didn't think fit, but being told to and told that I have to, you know, and, and play those and then have to be like, hey... Here's the new 21 Pilots, and it is something. And those kids, they're talented kids. I've met them. It's not for me. It passed me by, right? Oh, here's the new Joy Wave record. Like, all right, again, it's not – I missed my window. I missed my window, and I, I, I will I, – I mean, you you got the – you did this Lost Highway podcast, right? Yeah, Lost Weekend. Lost Weekend. Yeah, my country, right. my old country podcast. Right, so you, you did a music discovery thing. Yes. And all of the, the things that came out of radio that really, really mattered, it had such an, a huge effect on so many people's careers. A lot of them stemmed from music discovery shows. Yeah. And it, to this day, I'm in a – you know, I'm addicted to – other people's music discovery curation and I scan through people's sure. new music shows like nobody's business. Well, let me tell you, man, I went to see Jason Isbell recently mm -hmm. at uh, Copley 
and I discovered Isbel a long time ago. Oh, I know this. And I brought a lot of people into that guy. I turned a lot of people. There was I. I did have a certain and I people after the show that went first time they ever saw him. My messages on my wall, tweets were like, "Thanks, Woods, for turning me on to Jason." I had a sense of pride about that. It led me to know that hey, I know what good shit is, you know. And but I'm never going to be a guy they're going to let pick music for a radio station because, you know, our buddy Mike Halloran, one of the most respected men in this city in this town, and I love Mike now. Mike and I didn't used to get along. We're buddies now. I really um, think that a guy like Halloran, it, it's too he's too smart for it. Right, he's too good. He knows too much about it. It's been dumbed down so much. Halloran wants to get on, and he's so excited about this new band from wherever—Detroit, Philly, whatever. It sounds great. It's rock and roll. It's punk. Whatever. It's all the stuff we love. Doesn't play on the radio anymore. And and that's what I really started noticing is like Queens of the Stone Age would put a record out. We wouldn't play anything from it, and it would piss me off. And I would go to my bosses. I would say, "Why aren't we playing the new Queens?" Uh, it didn't test very well. I'm like, test with who? I'm like, it sounds fucking great. It sounds like drums and big dicks and rock and roll and fucking let's go. Let's play this. No, no, we're going to play the new Mumford and Sons. And that's <laughs> when I would walk out and be and look again, nothing wrong with Mumford and Sons. There's they're they're talented, too. But I just I really felt like, fuck, man, I missed the window of like when Pearl Jam and Nirvana, uh, they were breaking. That to me would have been my choice of being on the air then I would have, I loved that scene, that sound, all of that. Or when rat was breaking or shit like that guns and roses, that would have been a fucking blast. Well, you lived through all that. So I'm always insanely jealous uh, of people that did get to do this, this, the job that I love. I so, I'm so passionate about radio, but I've worked in radio in the shittiest fucking time of radio that's ever existed. I really, it really is. It's the wor- sports radio is doing worse than it ever has. Music radio is doing worse than it ever has. All these other people got to at least experience the good shit. They got to have you two come by the studio and and Jack White and all. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I I interviewed the neighborhood once. <laughs> I wanted to fucking hang myself when I was done. But it's just I do love it so much. But I am insanely jealous of the people that have gotten to go through. And see all the things that you did. And and when you ended up, one of your most fascinating chapters, and I don't know that you like to talk about it much, and we don't have to if you don't want to, but people need to know, I mean, you ran the Viper Room in, in Hollywood, which is, to me, it's the pinnacle of cool. It was at the time. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been in a few years. But when it opened, Joe, fuck. Were you there from its inception? No. No. Okay. No, I, in fact, um, it, there's a really easy definition to sort of understand my involvement with the place. And um, when Johnny Depp went out, I went in. Okay. Okay. I almost, yeah. Um, I almost. There was no overlap. No. No. In fact, you know, there was a whole bunch of shenanigans and bankruptcy and distancing and lawyers telling Johnny, "Hey, probably time to get away from this before it catches up with you." And out of that, my bosses got control of the room and ran with it and they still own it today and it's a cool spot man right, it, it, right. it is one of my wildest stories of my life i came my brother is a big oasis fan i'm a big oasis fan they did a tour with black crows called uh the brotherly love tour we lived in dallas at the time i was making money for the first time in my life making like six figures at i don't know 26 
having a ball in Dallas. That's like making a million dollars here. Honestly, it's crazy. And I had money, and I go, I, I, I owed my brother an Oasis show because I like took a ticket away from him when he was younger and took somebody else. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm gonna, we're going to fly out to the Greek Theater in L.A., fly out to California for your first time. We're going to go party. We're going to have a fucking blast. We're going to go see the show. I was probably 26. He was 21. Fly out to the fly out, get the tickets, go to the Greek. Amazing venue. So we um, we take some narcotics and we uh, are partying. We're having fun. And then we go to uh, the Rainbow mm-hmm. in Hollywood, which is I was wanted to show him. Hey, Zeppelin hung out here. The Who hung out here. Keith Moon bought Coke right over there from Anthony Kiedis' dad who used to sell it in here. I mean, I knew all the history. I've read everything, all, all of it. The pictures on the wall, then hair metal used to invade it. Oh, this is where Nikki Six got a blowjob under that table right there. So my brother was fascinated. So then we meet some dude that was a DJ there. And he's like, oh, he was just, he's a lonely guy, but he like spun records at, at uh, the Rainbow. And he goes, oh, you guys come upstairs to the DJ booth. So he takes us up there. He's like, play whatever you want. So we're, I'm playing like rat tunes and stuff, and then we we do some other things we shouldn't have done up there in a, a darkened room, and we did. And then he takes us to Viper Room for our, my very first time, and I just remember thinking, I'm the coolest motherfucker in the world right now. I got walked right in the front of Viper Room. That's what it's always been to me, just kind of this epitome of cool. But it it was a dark place when Johnny owned it. I mean, there was a lot of bad shit that happened there uh, when you when you took over. How did you guys get it pulled out of that kind of dark place? Well, uh, day one, you know, every single person on the Sunset Strip hated us as much as San Diego hates the Spanises. Why? Because uh, it's no longer, you know, it was their den of oh, cool. it and was. And they were super sure that we were going to turn it into a Taco Bell. And um, so that, that's my first day at work. You know, wow. you know, it's by, like me at 94.9. Yeah, right. it's like me at 94.9. Right. Everyone's saying, I thought you guys were about the music. Right. And um, so... Just taking our time and putting our stuff in, we we went really rapidly in the first six months and really rebuilt how the room was going to work so that um, it could have its own identity under our watch and not just be... we. The first two weeks were the last two weeks of the... Um, Steel Panther, realm, oh yeah, right? Steel Panther, it, it was Camaro was their biggest thing. It happened on Mondays, and like one of the first things I did was wave goodbye to those guys. Is they're like, you guys aren't Johnny Depp, so fuck you, we're out. You know, and just like everything, everything. That's that's the pinnacle. That's when you go into the gutter, into the bunker. You're like, okay, so your first day, like everything. Yeah, you're not Johnny, so we're out. So they bailed, right? Everyone did. Everyone did. I was uh, I was holding the calendar with X's all over it. Holy shit! It's, it's my first day at work with bands bailing. Right, right. Yeah, guys that were there all the time bailing, right. customers bailing, right. actively campaigning against you. And the guy who hired me was super solid. And I'm like, uh, yeah, this is atrocious. And he's like, yeah, guess what you have to do right now? Go book a lot of bands really fast. You know, and so we were working basically 18-hour days. At the time, I was chain-smoking about three packs of Marlboros. <laughs> and, in the, and this is in the office. Just like this thing is like the smoke is going out of the one window, yeah. the one brick wall window at the back of the Viper Room. is We're like calling every single person, every favor we ever had, and, you know, lining up every hint of a show anyway just to keep every single door open. And, you know, getting through the first month, was like curing cancer. Holy and, shit. You know, and it just in the first month, we still had 
major victories come to pass. Like, you know, the the first month had a white star show in it, and that's, you know, Cisco Adler, yeah, yeah, you know, Nick yeah. Adler's brother. Big Hollywood and, guys. You know, with, you know, a bunch of stars coming. A lot of those guys were actually showing up just in case it went away. So, like, wow. we're getting some, like, sort of morbid tourism fans that were selling a few extra tickets. And, you know, the calling, a bunch of bands like that. Like, we still had enough momentum to, to in the first month, get those shows. But then we immediately did a bunch of stuff. We lost the Monday, the biggest Monday in the club's history the first day. But then we turned around, and within 90 days, we'd made a deal with uh, Indy 103, and we ran the check one, two uh, Mondays. We booked it with... Uh, Michael Steele, the program director, and it ran for four years. We cured Mondays within 90 days. Nice. You know, just those little types of moves. And then, you know, next thing you know, we put the thing on the map, and by the sixth month, people are like, hey, it's back. It's back, and it's still uh, good. The, some of the people that they wound up keeping are absolutely crushing right now. Uh, the crowds are just where I'd want to see it. I can be proud to step in there. There will always be about, I'd say, 150 people that will just never, you know, speak to the place again. Yeah. But there will always be about 11 million people that feel just like you do. Yeah. They're like, I am so glad the place is preserved. Yes. Like an important, you know, part of my history. And, you know, I can go there and I can see some of the shows that we ran on my watch, which prints. Yeah. You know, Queens of the Stone Age, right? Danger Mouse in the third month. Like, how'd that happen? John Mayer doing that trio blues set, not the pop set, in December of 2004. That's my seventh month, you know? Amazing. Just pulling those kinds of shows out and um, letting the play. Uh, Elvis Costello doing a 90-minute full Roadhouse set of his hits. Incredible. And that's in the first year. It's incredible. First year, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's, you know, listen, when you're doing something like that, it's it gives you, you're getting that notoriety back. And that's that's what's important. I have always been such a um, such a lover of all things Hollywood, and and I know it's you know people in San Diego. I fucking hate L.A. I, I love L.A. I always have a blast when I go there, but I love living here. This is where I want to live. Yeah. But boy, when I need a weekend, when I need a debaucherous, debaucherous <laughs> weekend, that is my favorite. And I love that I'm eighty miles from it. I'm like I am, I am eighty miles from the place. That I grew up reading about, and I still, at 43, married, baby, when I'm on the Sunset Strip, I let my mind take me back to what may have happened right there, or that's where the crew house was, or this is where GNR was. Oh, that's the Roxy. They used to fucking blow the doors off that place. I still get nostalgic for it, and I still love um, what it represents, Hollywood, West Hollywood, all of that stuff to me, it still gives me the biggest rush. I love it. Yeah, it's I mean, so much fun. There's a band I like a lot. Um, I still haven't actually been able to uh, have them. They, they they play the Griffin. I haven't been able to get them at Music Box. I've been going down and seeing them at the Belly Up. Uh, Blackberry Smoke. Oh, Blackberry Smoke's phenomenal. Right? Yeah, I used to play them on my on Lost Weekend. Right, that's a perfect example of a band that um, we launched. They did their first L.A. shows yep. at the Viper Room. And this is us doing a lot. Like what you were talking with Jason Isbell. Uh, you know, hey, here's one. Hey, agent, we want to help that guy. Yeah. Those guys seem great. Yep. And we did that show twice. You know, and so we when they came back around, they played at the Griffin, you know, um, we kind of had some laughs about that. Like, you know, hey, you know, you guys are going someplace, but remember the salad days. Yeah, of course. And of there's course. hundreds of those bands. We did, I mean, better or worse, we did 
Katy Perry's first show. Crazy, you know, crazy on my watch. Like, you know, out of that, and then well, and she came back when I kissed a girl was like number one. Yeah, in the country. she came back because she remembered. And that same line from Crosses was there for the Katy Perry show at Viper Room. Like, Incredible, you know, fifteen hundred people trying to get into the thing. It's uh, it's this is why I love. I could sit here all day with Joe Rinaldi and and chop up old music stories, and he's got a million of them. But, um, dude, I I'm excited that you're doing all the things that uh, are so important. Like that, for people like me, and uh, in this town at Music Box, what do you guys have coming up at Music Box that you're you're stoked on? Um, man, it's we just announced New Year's uh, with Boombox. It'll be their fourth show with us. We're super excited about that. Um, we have the crossed after party shows. Uh, two of the greatest things out there right now, the presets, and then Bob Moses coming back for a third time. So about that crossed after party. Right. That that would be next weekend, right? Right. All right, this is funny. My wife and I are going on staycation mm-hmm. down at, uh, we're staying at the Marriott for the, the weekend. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an anniversary. It's our anniversary tomorrow, but we're going to go stay down there. I may see if I can talk her into going to Music Box. You got room for me if we, if I want to bring the misses down for the crossed after party? 100%. I bet it's a shit show, and I want to be there to witness all of it. All of it. All right, I'll text you. Yeah. I'll text you. Put me you, on the you, list plus the, one. You know this because you've seen me in action before. I don't fit in at all. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. It's But it's he's the, he says he doesn't fit in, but he knows all of this. It's like Halloran. Like, you look at Halloran, you're like, oh, yeah, you're like- you got like white hair and cool glasses and you wear all black, but yeah, you're a little bit older, but the guy could fucking run circles around anybody when it comes to musical knowledge, right? And it's like you, you you've been through it. And I think people when they meet you, they're like, Oh yeah, this guy knows what the fuck he's doing. There's no question. No, they, I think, have, they think I'm an accountant. Now, see, for ten years I've been doing radio and every day when I drive in, I'm like, How the fuck do I got all these people fooled? Like I literally <laughs> don't know what I'm doing. This is amazing. <laughs> When I met you, I was like, oh, yeah, this guy's dialed in. He knows exactly what he's doing. So that's why you know, if you're listening to this, you know the Oktoberfest uh, party is going to be incredible, October 6th and 7th. Uh, they can get tickets at West Coast Oktoberfest with a K.com. That's correct. Buy the VIP. We'll all be in there watching uh, Conor McGregor. It's going to be a blast. Joe, thanks so much for coming by. I had a blast, man. Yeah, it's an honor. Thanks for Thank having me Thank you, on. brother. Appreciate you.